Hello, everyone, and welcome to Placing Faces, the show where we sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I'm your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we get to sit down with casting director, art aficionado, and restaurateur, John Papsidera. John has had a hell of a career already with his work on TV shows such as Westworld, Ray Donovan, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Army Wives, just to name a few, as well as his work in the movies including Disney's Enchanted, The Dark Knight, The Prestige, Ender's Game, Interstellar, Jurassic World, Dunkirk, the list goes on and on and on and on. What's impressive to me about John's credits isn't just the size and quality of the productions that he's worked on, but the desperate natures. John is by no means a one-trick pony. We get a chance to chat with him at Automatic Sweat, his Culver City casting office slash salon and art gallery that he and his wife, Valerie, opened in 2003 in the hopes of creating an inviting, unpretentious art space, something that they seem to have succeeded at. John is a man that could easily be intimidating with his stature, impressive facial hair, and distinctly rock and roll southwestern styling, but he isn't. Partially because of his air of friendly, relaxed calm, and partially because of his stillness. He's kind and engaging, easy to talk to, and even easier to listen to as you're about to discover. I hope that you enjoy our interview with John, and I hope that you learn as much as I did. First, I want to talk to you about art because you've got... About art? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, yeah, sure. Because, because you have this amazing studio right next door. Thanks, yeah. That I briefly got to stick my head into. Yeah. And, and now we're in this room where art is yeah, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, yeah. And it seems to be a, a big excessive. part of your life. Because you started this studio, gallery. This gallery. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not studio. Yeah, gallery. Yeah. yeah. What, five years ago-ish? Yeah, four or five years ago um, when I moved into this space. And it was part of the reason why I really wanted to be in this space. Uh, I used to have a gallery years ago with four friends okay. called Glue. And it was on Beverly Boulevard. And, um, and we loved it. It all came out of a passion. You know, I, I really kind of believe I'm incredibly lucky, lucky to do things that I'm passionate about. And um, casting is one, and, uh, and art is another one, and restaurant and food is another one. I have okay. a, a restaurant as well. You do? I do. So, um, you know, I'm incredible how many people in their lives can say they, they do things that they're passionate about, and those are their careers and pursuits. Absolutely. So I'm really lucky about that. So, yes, I moved into this space, and part of the reason why I chose it is that I could get the gallery back. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and... With the studio, you started with your wife, if I'm not... Uh, yeah, Valerie and I did this uh, <laughs> gallery together, yeah. And on your website, it says <laughs> you, you created the space to encourage artists in a relaxed and unpretentious atmosphere. Yeah. And that word, unpretentious, seems to be a very important word in, in that statement. Yeah. What is it about art that draws pretension is that the right, would that be the yeah, right I guess word so. yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and how are you battling against that in in a town that is known Full of pretension <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think the the philosophy because i've collected for years mm -hmm. and um i know i always felt less than going into a lot of galleries you know the people try and build the walls really high so that you don't see that it's just a 
three card Monty, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and so in showing work, I, the biggest thrill for me is as a gallerist is to show work that moves people and or a, a collector that will buy their first piece ever in their life. And that's what's fun for me about it, exposing people to it. And that's what I find enjoying, uh, enjoyable about it. All the stuff that I buy and I have and I've collected and I show is all things that I'm drawn to for one reason or another, you know, um, but they affect me in a certain way. And I think when I went into galleries a lot and the pretension comes from people not saying hello, people not saying, can I help you? You know, if you ask about a piece of uh, a piece that's for sale or not, oh, it's not for sale. Like, it's just a lot of smoke and mirrors. And I think it should be more accessible than that. You know, I think, you know, people that are just getting into collecting people that want some interaction with the experience of buying art deserve more than quietly in silence walk around a gallery, nobody talk to them, and then walk out. That's just my feeling about it. I'd rather have it much more interactive. And so we always set out to have it be much more of an opening and a party and a celebration of the art that's welcoming to people than some kind of snooty, you don't, you don't get what we're doing here. Did you run into that a lot early in your exploration of art? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and even now. I mean, you go into galleries. I mean, I'm in Gallery Row. You can go into any of these galleries very few times. They might say hello um, when you walk in, and then that's it. You know, there's no price list out. There's no, you know, and it just feels off-putting. For me to experience art, yeah, you can do it in silence. You can do it in, you know, in a bubble of your own, I guess. But it just seems to be, for me, I like more of an interaction about it. I like to discuss it. I like to hear more about the artist than just, you know, try and find the courage to ask a salesperson about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that was kind of the philosophy of it. The other thing is, I only, we, don't rep, you know, we don't rep artists, so it really is just about showing the work and celebration, not necessarily, but showing the work and allowing people to experience the art. And it's mostly through artists that I find, artists that I collect, actors that I know did art, um, and you know, it's, been a, it's been a fun journey. Uh, How do you extension. go about finding artists? Everything from knowing, like I did uh, James Franco's really his first show yeah. uh, in the old gallery. And, um, and I just had read an article where he mentioned that he, you know, painted. And I pursued it and I knew people that rep James. And so I kind of went down that road. And, you know, it varies. It varies from you know, an artist that I was introduced to through somebody else to hearing about somebody that actually paints or actors and people coming in and go, oh, did you know that I paint or I, I draw or whatever? And then, you know, going down that road. But it's also, it's also always about me being drawn to the work. You know, very yeah. few times have we done stuff that I just thought was a good business move or people would like or, you know, um, you're, it's, you're going off of gut instinct yeah, and, and yeah, what you and like. finding the work interesting. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Does that, because we're here to talk to you about casting. Yeah. I wanted to start with that because it's <laughs> yeah. everywhere here yeah. and I, I love art as well. Has that colored your casting? It's an interesting question. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. 
Um, maybe because it has to do with a, a gut reaction. Maybe that it has to do with some kind of intuition. Why I'm drawn to a piece of art, why I'm drawn to a certain artist, certainly is similar to me in the experience of being drawn to an actor. Sometimes you understand why, sometimes you don't. Um, you know, it could be confidence, it could be um, something new that you haven't seen, and those things are similar, I think, between art and artists, meaning actors. Yeah. Um, you know, what piques your interest? is, you know, at the end of the day, it's the only thing that we, I have as a brand, is my taste, you know? And so whether that be in art or whether that be in actors or in food or whatever, it is kind of, I'm at the center of that. And without it being the world according to John, um, there is something about me viscerally responding and empathizing and feeling something about all of those disciplines, mm -hmm. you know, and expressions of art. How did you cultivate that? How did you cultivate your, because, and, and I mean, one of the impetuses of this show was because casting directors are tastemakers in mm -hmm. this industry. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who are bringing to directors, bringing to audiences these faces, sometimes new, sometimes old, sometimes top of the game, sometimes they weren't even part of the game for a while and now they're coming back big. So how how did you develop your taste? Thank you first for acknowledging that, you know, as, yeah. as casting directors. I mean, I think, you know, um, it's part of it's part of the journey that we fight. It's part of the, you know, the the um, the story that I think casting directors have to push back against, you know, in some ways directors, producers, whoever that is, they like to claim that is their own work. And without a casting director, most people wouldn't know any of those actors. And so it is about, you know, our collaboration with people. It is about our taste being brought to the forefront. We may not ever be the, the final decision maker. Um, and I think for me, I always feel like I have to have options. And, you know, it's, it's not as much my movie as it is our movie. And Absolutely. so, you know, just like it is any other position. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I feel like I always have to have other alternatives and see things from all different sides. Um, but, you know, by and large, um, it is inf influencing a production, having it filtered through your sensibilities, how you receive the script, how you interpret those roles. It's all filtered through that. And I guess my idea or thoughts about taste and or how is that cultivated. You know, I can remember when I first started in casting at the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles, my taste was the same that day as it is now. And okay. I always find that fascinating. I don't necessarily think people cultivate a taste. Yes, you cultivate a collection of actors, a, um, a um, you know, dictionary of actors in your head that you can pull from. Um, but I think I respond, and it's like art, what we were talking about, I respond to the same kind of things that I did then. Now, I was lucky okay. enough, I, undergraduate school, I went for acting, I went to graduate school for acting. So I think it's based in that to some degree, um, but it's never about a personality or, oh, I like that actor, or I don't like that actor. To me, it's about trying to find something interesting that moves me about that actor. Did you have a visceral response role, to it? that fits the role. I mean, you know, ah. you really do have a lot of 
gods to serve as a casting director. Yeah. And, um, and so some of it might not always just be my taste, it's also reading what a director wants, what a producer wants, and finding common ground among all that. You know, because I'm not the director. You know, I don't get to make every call. If I cast everybody that I wanted, well, you know, that's not necessarily the director's film, you know? And so I think it's some, somewhere in between there that alchemy happens. Okay. Yeah. I guess when I ask about the cultivation process, mm. that, to me, I think that that happens early in life. Mm. Um, so let's, let's take a step back from <laughs> delving into that and, and talk about, well, let's go to the beginning. Where are you from and how did you, how did you know that you wanted to get into this industry? That's a good question. Um, I am from Florida. I was raised in West Palm Beach, Florida, okay. and uh, raised in a flower shop. And uh, my parents owned a flower shop and, a, and my uh, grandparents before them. Um, and since you, you touched on it just a bit ago, and honestly, if I can say there's one common thread of, that I recognize that I'm now here, is that, and what I do what I do, I feel on some level I was raised to be a casting director. How's that? Because that's In an emotional, psychological sense. Okay. In my family, I think I was always on alert to see, because things weren't spoken about necessarily, and so you had to observe where you were. You had to observe if you were safe, if you weren't safe. You had to observe whether you were in trouble or you weren't. Um, uh, whether you love, you were loved or you weren't. And, because um, the communication wasn't there, you had to observe I that? I think so. And, yeah. and it was a, somewhat of a painful childhood, lonely childhood for me. So I think out of that, I'm an incredible observer. I think it was also, I started working in restaurants when I was, uh, when I was 12, 13, and worked my way through school and restaurants and graduate school and college. And then ended up running a lot of uh, restaurants in New York, and I opened a restaurant in London, moved out here and opened restaurants for celebrity chefs, and I was in that world. And I still, owning a restaurant, it fascinates me, and even my staff here, fascinates me how unobservant most people are. And whether it's a crooked painting on a wall oh, that, that I have to crazy right that you have to fix, <laughs> or walking through a dining room when I ran restaurants and I could see if some some person a, a, a diner had an instinct that they needed something you know had a a moment of uh, I'm doing a physical thing but you can see anticipation or a, yeah. somebody looking for help or back in the day, whether it was a cigarette and an ashtray. I don't miss any of those things. And it's fascinating to me how even people here, there'll be a glass of water on the ground, everybody goes home. How do you not see that? Mm -hmm. How is it not picked? So those kind of observant kind of things. And I think it, it filters into art, it filters into all of that for me, that it's about observation and how I then filter that through myself and respond to it in a certain way. But I do think it, it came out of childhood. You know, it was yeah. like, how do I observe differently than most people? And I think it's a, it's a real attention. It's a horrible nightmare to go to dinner with me. My wife constantly <laughs> is like, John, will you relax and stop looking around the dining room? But it is, I'm always keen 
keenly aware of those things going on around me. Yeah. And I think that certainly plays into being able to read actors, you know, physically, emotionally, all those things. It's fascinating to me the idea that early observation sticks with you. Mm. All of those things that we learn so early on when it comes to art, when it comes to the things that we like, the things that we dislike, they set you in who you are. Because, it's because crazy, right? It really is. Yeah. Because you say when you started at Mark Tabor, yeah. your taste hasn't changed since then. Yeah, I don't think that. Now, it I mean, it the, may have grown, it may have expanded right. in different that's directions, right. and there are other things, but still that core, like you're going to react to the same things that you reacted to at that time. Absolutely. And that, that to me is just fascinating. And, and then some things you never know why. And it's a, you know, you don't know yeah. why you're drawn to certain things. But it grabs you. A face you. Yeah. or a, a moment or a choice. Or a painting or a... Right. Yeah. But it does grab you in a certain way and it's what you gravitate towards. You know, yeah, and um, and yeah, being that having my taste listened to or displayed or accepted and and found value in is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's it's the drug of yeah. I think this industry. It is. You know, it when is. you get on stage and you yeah. can hear a pin drop and you're giving your soliloquy to the audience. Right. There's there's nothing better than that feeling, and and I have to assume that that feeling permeates as a director, as a casting director, as a producer, as a makeup artist. When yeah. somebody's like, "Hey, I saw what you did there, and that was fucking great. Yeah, well done. Yeah, that and and it's I don't think it's a look at me, look at me. I need to be. It's yeah. it's a validation of going into an industry that is very difficult. Yeah. To, to succeed in. That's a really, that's a smart idea. Yeah, because it, it's not so much for me as, um, and it's nice to get recognition. And of course, Absolutely. as human beings, we, you know, crave it or like yeah. it or, you know, but it's not so much that. I think it's more from, it, it is about recognition in the sense of you served this story well. You know, you, you made this kind of world seem seamless. And, and I think, you know, the best casting for me is always somewhat invisible. You know, it's done with a light hand. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and, um, and so it's not about look at me. In fact, most things, you know, when I watch films or see films cast or shows, the stuff that's showy feels a little insincere to me. Whether a director's so manipulative in a film that you go, ah. oh, he's constantly waving his arms, like, look at me, I'm, I'm here. Uh-huh. Or how casting has done that, right? Yeah. Or casting do- does that. It pulls me out of it. You know, I want to be immersed in something and go, wow, I got, a, I got an entry into that world and I believed it all. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what really I try and do. And... Well, you do it really well. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about your early days as a casting associate and assistant. Yeah. You worked on some fairly large films mm. almost right out of the gate. Yeah, after, after the taper, um, I went and started to work with, um, you know, it was, it was interesting because when I went to the taper, I had been running restaurants for years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I just got to the point where I realized I'd always wanted to be in the entertainment business. And I felt like I didn't have, um, 
when I stopped acting, when I realized I got out of graduate school, I remember I went to a Diet Pepsi commercial in New York, and I was doing under fives and soap opera and stuff like that. And I went to a audition for a Pepsi commercial that was a takeoff on Top Gun. And I sat in this make-believe cockpit and cameras were on you. And I was acutely aware that, oh, I can't do this. I was not about talent. It was about, I think, now in hindsight, it was about a sense of ego. It was about a sense of, I deserve this and other people don't. It was, it was huh. about that confidence and not about talent because I had always been recognized as that through school and graduate school and stuff and scholarships. And, but it was about the idea that I couldn't walk into a room or stand in front of a camera and bare my soul every day and withstand it. You know, it's why I yeah. so respect actors and I have such empathy for actors because it's a brutal, brutal process, you it know. And, and that and, seems to be a, a through factor with a lot of casting directors, yeah. is that they're, they have a heavy empathy mm. towards actors. Yeah. And I think that's important. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's essential on some level. You know, mm -hmm. it's funny, early on, um, uh, I had done one commercial in my life, and it was a favor to a friend, and where I used to house my offices. And... I said afterwards, I can't do this. In that, it's a brutal job even more so than casting for film and television, I think. Because really? actors are a mere product. It's, sure. It's just... It's look, in, feel, That's right. On. Just feel, do what we on. want you to do, jump like a monkey, do this. Mm -hmm. It's just about that product. And, um, and it and ignores the human being in it. I found, I found in that experience. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I'm not doing that. Um, but yeah, it is about the empathy. It is about um, trying to create a space where an actor can share a bit of their soul. Mm -hmm. you know. And that's really, I think, what the job is. And, and I think because I have come from a place where it is about my life has been um, emotional in the sense of identifying people and connecting with people and, and reading people, that I still apply that every day. I still feel that for actors. So yeah. I remember that experience and thinking, nah, no, 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 I can't do this. So I ended up running restaurants in New York um, and then I moved out here and always felt like, I guess at the end of the day, though I was successful in the restaurant business running them, I felt like I had walked away from my dream of being in, in, in inter entertainment. And so um, it was in a process of, well, what do I want to do? I know I don't want to be an actor. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had the, the guts to say I wanted to be a director at that point. Um, I knew I didn't want to be an agent or, you know, in development. And so I had, my best friend from college was in casting, and um, I thought that's a great kind of fit. You know, I still get to be around actors. Business has always come easy to me, and it's a real blending of those things. And um, and so that's I left running a you know a big restaurant and started as an intern at the Taper. And uh, Stanley Sobel, God rest his soul, was lovely and said, "Oh yeah, you should start." And um, in the first day, they said to me, "Oh, can you um, can you make sides? Um, you you got to take this to a copier and it." And I wasn't a kid, like I'd been running business. I was like, yeah, give me the papers. And I went over and I made copies. And in like a week or 10 days, they offered me an assistant position. 
And, um, and then I worked there for two and a half years and then ultimately started to work with other independent casting directors. And, um, and then became an associate for Mindy Marin. And that's really when yeah. I started to work on bigger movies because Mindy was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you worked at that time on Clear and Present Danger, mm -hmm. Cutthroat Island, mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what it. everybody hates about that movie. I yeah. love that movie. I was I was probably the demographic at that time. I right. was like yeah. seven years old, and yeah, it was who pirates. Want to see pirates? Come on, and yeah. Gina Davis, and um, it's I I enjoyed. It. And yeah. what's interesting to me about that one is what ten years later, fifteen years later, Pirates of the Caribbean comes out. Huge. And it's massive. It's kind of you to say that we were before our time. <laughs> I, th I really think... That's I, the spin. I, I, I'm I kind of think it yeah. was before its time. Right. Then you were an associate at Anaconda. Yeah. Well, you look back at that and you go, well, J-Lo and John Voight and, and you know, and Owen Hughes Wilson. And, like, and, I mean, It's got a great cast. Yeah, it does. I mean, you look at... And, look, I still I, don't know what Voight's accent is <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> I'm not sure what that was either. John was on a... Um, uh, a Christianity bent. I mean, ah. he, I mean, he really. I think you know. Now remembering back, really focused on that's what he wanted his character to have was a sense of religion about him, a okay. sense of faith that about comes him. Through. Yeah, that absolutely, um, comes uh, through. which was not on the page. You know, huh. uh, and um, yeah. I mean, you look at that and you kind of go, "Wow, that was just, I, I'm partial to all of them, but I don't think there's a bad cast I've ever put together." But I think sure. that probably has to do with the fact, plenty of people disagree with that, but it probably has to do with the fact that I like all those actors that I've been able to cast. Or you else know, you probably and, wouldn't have recommended them or yeah, put yeah, them yeah, forward yeah, yeah. for the role. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so after those, the first one, the first movie that you set out on your own as a mm. casting director was Austin Powers' International mm -hmm. Man of Mystery. Mm -hmm. That's a hell of a start. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I mean, yes, now in hindsight, you know, but at that time it wasn't, Mike wasn't in the place where, you know, he is um, heralded now, you know, yeah. and um, and people. But he's you know, still SNL royalty at that point yeah, in time. Yeah, but, you know, Axe Murderer didn't do what they probably which thought. Which it should and, have. You know, which it should have. Yeah. And, you know, look, it is the cyclical thing of this town. But reading that script, I mean, it was was hysterically funny and interesting and you know and I've not ever thought about this but I wonder if many people had kind of been doing that com that kind of comedy in that day and age I don't know I can't think of a comparable thing where somebody was playing a character that strong and making a send-up of it in a certain way Nobody outside of the SNL folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, so it was a challenge at that point to you know like convince people and get them in the process. And so convincing other actors to get on yeah, board. Yeah, I mean, really? people either got it or they didn't, or were afraid of it. Or were there any that didn't get it, then got it, and then got the role? Well, not in that process. But oh. you look at you know, and I only did the first one with Jay Roach, and then the second one came out, and I was like. Oh yeah, now everybody gets it and they're on the bandwagon. Yeah, you know, it was like chalk full of stars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, but it's funny, you know, first adapters and, and that kind of thing, the first one of a series is always the toughest one to get right and allow it to have, you know, a life after that. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and speaking of that one, I would be totally remiss if we didn't talk at least a little bit about the Batman trilogy. Hmm. And I think that the point that you hit on uh, about 
Austin Powers about hitting it in the first one that allows the rest of it to mm -hmm. work is really important. Do you have any idea of that when you're starting something like that? When you're going into Batman Begins with Christopher Nolan and you're casting an iconic character, yeah. uh, iconic characters across the board in yeah. that movie? Um, I don't know that I had a real sense of it in the, in, in, in the way that, oh, this is gonna be the three picture franchise that you know kind of rediscovers what that world is. And, and resets the clock for it. Um, you know, it's just, it's a, it always felt an incredibly um, important uh, moment when I get to work with Chris and Emma, and now it's been 17 years or so that we've worked together. A lot of great um, films. Yeah, and you know, I really, I mean, that's really to Chris, uh, Chris's credit. I mean, you know, he's one of the brightest, smartest, most, detailed person that I mm -hmm. met in the business. And you know, the film is already in Chris's head before we even start. Um, and that helps. Yeah, <laughs> you know, every shot, everything is already kind of there. So it's more about filling in the blanks for Chris than okay. it is discovering what those roles are. So with, with the trilogy of Batman, yeah. who was attached before you came aboard? Nobody. Nobody. No. I always feel like I'm the casting director that doesn't get that break. That, you know, so-and-so is attached. That, um, is that better or worse? Because I, I would think having a blank slate would be freeing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, there's advantages and disadvantages, you know. Um, uh, yes, on the creative level of, oh, it's a blank slate. But there is the pressure of, I've got to get this right and we got to make the movie happen. Yeah. And in, and unless you have the right components to that, it could all fall apart, you know. And so there's a there's an inherent pressure with that as well, as opposed to oh, you've got one or two big stars and the movie's going, you know, you're just filling in around that. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, there was nobody attached to to Batman at all. So what is the, what is, what is the first step in that process when you jump on board to that film? It, it's happened pretty much with all the films that I've done with Chris, except Memento. Memento, Chris didn't know a lot of American actors. I mean, he was brand new here, yeah. and you know, it was probably one of the fastest casting processes because he was like, "Just bring me the people you like. Bring me your favorite people." Huh. And so it was very quick, you know, it was kind of like, oh, they're great. Yeah, they're great. So it was a very fast. So it was easy to sell it, at yeah, that point. Yeah, it was, you know, and yeah. he just chose people that he liked that, you know, I got in the room. It's become more complicated as, as that goes sure. down because the, the budgets are bigger and things are, but it really always starts for the most part. I read the script, they call me, I read the script, and we start to talk about, you know, those main characters and how, he sees it, how I see it, we start to fill in those things about coming up with ideas, what might be right, what might be wrong, and, um, and then deciding on that. I mean, he's fairly decisive. And are you deep diving as well into the back lore of Batman? Or are you, are you? He had really done all that. He and Emma okay, had really so done he, all that kind of stuff. Ah, you know, about, well, about the back lore, you know, the, the, the lore of the comic books, all that kind of stuff was, you know, brought to the table. Yeah. I knew it, having grown up around it, I knew, but I can't say that I'm a fanboy. I was not a, you know, a comic book kid, you know, necessarily. Um, and so it was really about reading the script and finding out how do you flesh out what's on the page. 
and who's the right person to embody this, mm -hmm. you know? I also think um, at that point, it was right after Spider-Man yep. and the reboot with Toby and, and that, you know, version of it. And so I think we had to figure out in that process too, do you want to follow that template of Batman becoming Batman as a young man growing into it, or is he already formed? Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because in that process, we kind of learned through the script, the setup of the script, was that he, was, he already had to fight um, Raja Ghul on page 15. Yeah. You didn't have a lot of time for him to grow up and believably have that conflict. So that dictated kind of how we then started to look at the role as well. Okay. Okay. So he needed to be more of a man and less, than, and less of a boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so it first starts with the script. Everything always yeah. starts with the script. Then conversations with the director, producers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long is the process for, for a film like that when you're dealing with, I mean, Christopher Nolan, you've you did Dunkirk, you've done so yeah. many of his very iconic movies. Yeah. What is the length of that process? It kind of depends, you know. I mean, on Dark Knight, I think we did three continents and seven countries, and I never left my desk, but it was probably a year. Okay. You know, or close to it, nine, ten months, because I, even though they started shooting, I was still working on things. Um, and how long is that before we were seeing a movie? That's a year and a half or so, maybe before the movie okay. comes out. By the time you're started. Yeah. Or by the time you're finished. Finished. By the time I'm finished. So you start two and a half years, three years before yeah, anybody's seeing Yeah, it was probably two years, two and a half years on, on Dark Knight. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're the, usually the first ones on. Yeah. I'm, um, I don't know that it's a badge of courage, but, you know, I'm usually one of the first ones that gets to read the script, you know, as a department yeah. head, um, which is always exciting, you know, which Absolutely. is always cool. You know, when you're and, dealing with, especially when you're, okay, I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm a bit of a fanboy of Christopher yeah. Nolan's. I, yeah. I have to admit I that. am too. I, I am love too. his work. Yeah. Interstellar is one of my absolute favorites. I've, I've read the original, original script when he was Did writing really? back with Kip Thorne. And, uh, yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah, you know stuff. it. Like, I, yeah. I, I love, because he explores science fiction yeah. so well. And he loves the science part of science yeah. fiction. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that so much sci-fi doesn't hit everybody. Mm -hmm. If it has that concrete science background, yeah. then it, it feels more real. And you I don't have it, to suspend disbelief as much. Right, and I think it's a real tribute to audiences. You know, Chris is, um, uh, is not fanatical, but very respectful of the process and takes film very seriously, in my experience of him. And nobody wants to shortchange the audience or figure out, oh, they'll just, they'll not pay attention. There are no big leaps, like you said, of suspension of, you know, disbelief. Mm -hmm. Like, that science, I think, grounds it in a way. Yeah, I'm always shocked, first of all, just how smart he is, you know. But secondly, um, the process by which, you know, sitting down and talking to astrophysicists to get the yeah. science right and having a team of people that you know, talk to him about those things. I remember when we did The Prestige. Um, um, a movie that I just watched again last night. One really, of my absolute favorite movies. It's, I, I love down. the movie. Um, but, you know, we were sitting there one day and we were talking about it, and I remember Chris saying this to me, that um, talking about magic 
And he said, well, you know, I'm kind of the magician in the film. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, I have to misdirect where everybody's looking. The whole time. The whole time throughout yes. the film because I can't show them my trick. And I sat because there and then listened. the reveal, the prestige. Right. And sucks. I sat there and listened to that and I thought, okay, my head just went out. My brain just blew out of the back of my head. <laughs> I can't even comprehend that kind of level of detailed thinking. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was doing exactly what the magicians and a magician does mm -hmm. is distract you so you don't see what's really happening. And that's why I think his movies stand out and have stood out for so long is because those levels and those layers and that attention to mm -hmm. detail mm -hmm. makes a movie rewatchable. If, sure. if you watch something and it's given to you all through, it may be an enjoyable movie, but I'm not going to go back and watch it again because I got it all. Yeah. The prestige, watching it again last night, I keyed in on so many things that I just totally missed the first few times yeah. that I viewed it. Yeah, I think there's so many layers in his films, and it does come down to detail. I mean, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about, me noticing details. When I watch films, when I watch anything, it shocks me when people have no attention to detail. You know, whether it's an editing thing where, you know, cups of you know water go up and down, or the label is one way in yeah. a bottle and the label is not, those kinds of things, to major like faux pas and I just want to go wait as a director what are you looking at if you're not looking at details mm -hmm. you know what I mean like that's your canvas that frame to me it should be perfect is the goal yeah and if you're not doing that then what are we watching we're watching some facsimile of something that's real or not real I don't know to and me, that's sloppiness. It's, and it's hard to get past that. It's yeah, hard for to, me. Just well, the way my mind works, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I heard, I heard a quote a long time ago, something that I, I, I try to hold on to, that is, if you pay attention to the details, the rest will take care of itself. It's true. I think what that's basically saying is, to figure out what the details are, you've got to go through all those other steps. Mm -hmm. But it's the process of going through all those steps where you figure out everything. Yeah. And if you don't do that, if you just scratch the surface, then you're going to make a surface film. That's you're right. going to make a surface painting. Get. And that doesn't speak to people because it doesn't have that. I, I agree. Yeah. So I, because we're talking to actors, because we're mm. talking to directors, because we're talking to film lovers, yeah. I have to ask about Heath Ledger in this extremely iconic role. Yeah. Are there any things that stood out to you in the process of casting Heath? Mm -hmm. in the role of the Joker that I know people railed against him mm -hmm. with that movie. When it, when it was first announced that Heath Ledger was mm -hmm. going to be playing the Joker, everybody yeah. shit their pants. And right. Like, why is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. Right. He was in A Knight's Tale, right. another favorite movie. <laughs> You've never met a movie that you haven't liked. If you ask, <laughs> if you ask pretty much anybody that I know, uh, yes, I love movies, I, I, and I'll find, I'll find beautiful things about every movie that I watch. That's fantastic. Um, That's a lovely quality to have. I think so, too. I do. I, I, agree. Go, I go to a movie or to a television show to, to escape, to learn, mm -hmm. to grow, to just imbibe another character. There's two, and it goes back to pretension. Mm. I think that there's a lot of pretentious people here in this town yeah. that when they go watch a movie, they shit all over it. Yeah. 
because they read the book and the book was way better. Mm. The, the animated version was so much better. Right. Well, then, yeah, of course, it was a different thing. This yeah. is a different thing. And, and expectation for me, I think, is key on that. Like, I, I go into movies with zero expectation. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a fantastic quality to have. I mean, I wish I had more of it. You know, yeah. but it is, well, it's hard, you know, I say this a lot to my wife, mostly. <laughs> it's hard to judge all day long and then turn that off. And so that's I, a good point. I find it hard to turn it off in other places of my life, whether it's going to see a movie, whether it's eating out, whether it's whatever it is, yeah. it's hard not to turn that eye that is constantly like, yes, no, yes, no, turn it off. To not be critical. Yeah, not be critical. Not judge what I'm viewing and just mm -hmm. be open to it. I mean, I think, I think for me at least, I can be critical of things, mm -hmm. but I try not to have that set as my default. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a lot easier for me because my job isn't being super critical of yeah. uh, literally every person that comes <laughs> up and reads for you because yeah. you have to be then that's your job right that's my job and yeah. you have to be of the level that you're at you yeah. have to be good at that yeah but going back to yeah, sorry. going no 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 worries at all uh, we'll go on all sorts of things <laughs> yeah. with Heath Ledger yeah what what was that audition like and what was working with him on that role like and i guess what did he come to the table with well, I think it's, it has to be framed in the sense that we talked about ideas, we talked about guys that could do it and that were right. And, um, and it was a short list. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and we went after a couple of guys and um, at least exposed them to it, had a meeting kind of thing. And shockingly, most guys were afraid to step into the Jack Nicholson shoes. Now, okay. we found that with Batman initially too. There were plenty of guys really? that didn't want to step into Batman's shoes. Okay. Um, oh, it's going to be too limiting. Oh, I don't want to be the guy in a mask. Oh, it's going to be silly. All those kinds of things. Because everybody had seen the Joel Schumacher yeah. version. I mean, the, it comes yeah. with its baggage, yeah. good and bad. Yeah. And, um, and so the same thing with the Joker. I think a lot of actors were intimidated about, well, I don't want to do some version of what Nicholson had done because that's so iconic. Um, and Heath came in, had a meeting with Chris, never read, had a meeting okay. with Chris, and he was fearless. You know, he didn't have those same fears about it. He was a guy that was like, put his hand up and said, oh, I can do this. And, you know, and I think between the, the two of them, they came up with this idea that it was not the wink, wink, nod that had been done with the Joker, sure. that it, he was really an anarchist. Mm -hmm. And I think Chris brought up that idea of anarchy, that it's not humor that he's after, it's his own internal humor, what he finds funny. And, it, and that was anarchy. That was just to tear the system down. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't so much about, you know, how the Joker had been interpreted of, oh, he's funny and he likes jokes and, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't about humor, it was about a societal mischief and a societal kind of um, abandon that he wanted to destroy. And, and I think, you know, Keith really got that and talked about it and that was that. And came in fearless. Yeah. I think that's a big takeaway yeah. is not being afraid of it even though there's a lot of reasons to be afraid in that sure. situation. 
You're... But I also think it also probably, I mean, I would make up that being in the hands of somebody like Chris Nolan, it's, a, it's an easier leap to take, you know? Yes. At, at least that's how cuts. I saw it. Yeah. 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 You know? He's not going to make you look like a fool. It is going to be thought through. Um, the film is going to have a certain tone to it. All those things. And with that movie, because that's the second of the trilogy, yeah. where is that taking place on the timeline of these movies? Had, had Batman Begins come out already? Yeah, Batman Begins had come out. So it came out. It came so, out. So he went in knowing, all right, the tone is this. They're... Yeah, he wanted to make it dark and serious and more like a graphic novel, more what the car- you know, what the comic books were like rather than certainly the Adam West version on television, certainly where the kind of winky, you know, versions of it had gone Mm -hmm. in the Joel Schumacher films. It was, how do you reset this franchise and make it something different and original that we hadn't really seen? Mm -hmm. I love those movies. Uh, Yeah. And and I've got so many movies to talk about, so we're going to go through a couple more. Okay. Uh, I definitely want to talk a bit about Dunkirk. Mm. Uh, It won a few Oscars, it was nominated for a bunch more. It was beautiful. The cast across the board looked and felt like that period. First off, why the fuck isn't there a casting Oscar? <laughs> we ask ourselves that every day. Um, again, it, I mean, I touched on it. I think, well, I think a lot of things about it, but I do think that Producers, directors are afraid to give that up to someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to own ideas. You know, it's my film, it's my idea, it's my... And it goes back to that collaborative, you know, philosophy. Um, and I think it's tough for an institution that has basically run on that premise for, you know... Uh, forever. Forever. Yeah. To then people... I mean, there are directors that won't call casting directors casting directors. They'll say casting people. It's insulting and I would never work with somebody like that. Um, uh, you know, to, and now I also think that casting directors in the past, we have our own part in, in that, in that I don't think necessarily everybody's conducted themselves in the most professional manners at times okay. and tried to be viewed as professionals, you know. Um, I think, you know, on some level it became a found profession and since there is no real training ground for it, people discarded it as, oh, well, yeah, it was a, somebody that was interested in being a producer's assistant that, you know, after the studio system just started to do this. And, uh, and I think that's changing now. I think people um, aspire to be casting directors. So I think the level of professionalism, how it's viewed is different. But it takes time to turn that ship. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and when directors and producers push back on that, that no, 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 I made the decision. Well, yeah, you chose a you chose a wig too, but Absolutely. and an outfit, but yeah. you know, you still have wardrobe and costume people getting uh, you know Oscars. It, um, I think, it's one of the the most essential. Of course, I'll feel this way. There's no movie without an actor. You've got nothing to shoot. And um, without this collaboration of a casting director, you don't have a movie. And so for me, it's a huge exclusion. It is a huge misstep that 
we are an essential huge part to everything in a film um, and what those those lives end up being because you know even the process is a camera captures the essence of a person that that is what you're trying to do in movies you know tell a story but you can't do it without actors and um, you know so I don't know why there isn't hopefully one day there will be I think it should be sooner than later you know yeah, it's hard to believe agree. that you know it's not but here we are here we are yeah um, so with Dunkirk yeah um, you've got Tom Hardy Cillian Murphy Kenneth Branagh yeah. Harry Styles pops up in there yeah uh, who surprised me about a quarter of the way through the movie I was like, is that it? Oh, <laughs> that's that, Harry that isn't yeah Damn, he's 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 good yeah what sort of things do you do to research this kind of project that, that is set in a different period mm. that is historically accurate mm -hmm. to what was happening at the time and a really big moment in history for mm. a lot of people who are still alive mm -hmm. there are people who were Either, I don't know if there are people who were at Dunkirk who were still alive. I, I assume there yeah, are. Yeah, might be. But we're, we're, we're teetering young. on the edge I don't know if they were right now. Yeah, I, mm, I don't remember whether or not I heard that Chris and Emma had met with anybody that actually was involved with Dunkirk or not. I, I can't remember that. It seems like they did, but I don't remember that exactly. I think if, uh, if they were alive, then I'm sure they probably would have met with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think that... Um, you know, from the very outset, we talked about the tone of the film, but but also how we would cast it. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we didn't want it to be known faces. You know, I mean, Chris and Emma had pitched the movie, really, to Warner Brothers as not having any recognizable people in it because it was about this experience. It wasn't about stars, mm -hmm. you know. And really, when I first read the script, which was short, you know, um, because there's a lot of silence in that movie. A lot of silence in the movie. I mean, you look at it now and it's so thin on dialogue. It's, it is. I, I'll, I'll go back to that for one second. Sure. The fact that it wasn't more recognized with awards kind of blows me away. Agreed. Um, I feel like if you compare that as a director, a, a, a task as a director, that film compared to the others, I, I don't even think it's a competition. I mean, you know, you're talking about a film that not only visually was what it was, experientially is what it was, um, but that then was working on three different time frames and playing with time. And putting that together, to me, is monumentally more difficult than people talking. Anyway, so I'm partial, but I, uh, I do think that it was very overlooked for the kind of film that it is. Um, so, but we talked about we wanted it to feel real. We wanted it to feel like it was about the experience, not about tracking actors through it. Um, and then through conversations, and Chris had talked to somebody that said, well, maybe one in one, each storyline, there can be one solid person that we kind of follow, one known person. And so then it kind of morphed into that. Um, and, you know, how do we follow Tom Hardy's storyline? How do you follow Ken Branagh's storyline, Mark Rylance's storyline? So it really then became about putting a people in each situation, each location of the story um, that we could follow their, you know, journey. You know, how do you follow Finn's journey? Mm -hmm. um, and 
that's what became the objective. You know, can we keep it as real as possible without pulling people out of it and only tracking the story and the timeline through a one common denominator in that segment? Yeah. So um, that's kind of how it started to evolve. And then a lot of it is just feeling your way through it. You know, you look at people and you go, it's a too, he's too contemporary. He speaks too contemporary or his mannerisms are too contemporary. You start to then sort through that. Um, and by the time you're done with the process, I assume you've got it. No, nope, nope, yeah. nope. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Nope. There was a, yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. And everybody's got, you know, I mean, Chris would feel different about people. Emma would feel different about people. I would at times. But ultimately, once it all started to get down to, we ended up doing um, callbacks in London and having people mix and match and read with different combination okay. of actors. And um, by the time it got down to that, you could start to see, oh, this combination of people really works. Oh, that person stands out regardless if they're reading with three other people, you're watching that person. Huh. So it really started to come together about the final ensemble, about how all those pieces fit together and how those actors worked amongst each other. Sure. Yeah. Is that a process that you've used multiple yeah. times? You, do you use that often? Yeah, I mean, we did it on Power Rangers, not to skip big genre movies that I've done, but Power we did it on Power Rangers. Yeah, we did it on Power Rangers. Sure, you want to see, you know, chemistry, you want to see how people interact with one another, and especially when it's an ensemble, you want that feeling that they work together. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and that you got the chemistry of it right. So, yeah, I've done it a bunch of times, but certainly on Dunkirk it was really instrumental. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I guess we can hop off the Christopher Nolan train for a little bit. <laughs> Um, as much as I could. Okay, really what? You want to talk about Bubble Boy? Okay, go uh, ahead. No. Uh, <clears throat> actually, yes. No, no, no. Uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about Imposter because every time I do these, I try to watch something that I haven't seen before mm -hmm. and that I haven't heard of before. Mm -hmm. Imposter, I hadn't seen or heard of before. It is, uh, for those of you listening who aren't familiar, uh, it is a Philip K. Dick story. It's got Gary Sinise, Vincent D'Onofrio, Madeline Stowe, and it is very Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, which is in vogue right now. Yeah. A lot of... Again, before it's time. I, I, think, it, I think it was before. <laughs> and it, I really do think it was because yeah. I read about the release schedule of this movie mm. and how that got all fucky. Really? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Well, apparently, it was supposed to come out uh, during Christmas, but because mm. the studio had another movie that they wanted to put out, it got, it got moved kicked back, back. Yeah, and it had also been shelved. Yeah, before that was supposed to even happen. Yeah. So I definitely th because there are a lot of movies around this era. Yeah, that were happening at that time, yeah. and they were, and and I think that this movie holds up. Yeah. just as well as those movies do. Yeah. I could go back and watch Total Recall at any time. Right. This movie I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think Gary did a Gary Fleeter's director, and mm -hmm. I think he did an amazing job with the film. I I really love that film. Yeah, um, uh, and I think all the performances are really good. I and think D'Onofrio was D'Onofrio was fantastic. Like that's that's after he'd done Men in Black, after yeah. he had done some other things that were a little bit bigger commercially. But in this one, he really got to like stretch as yeah. being a badass and yeah. being a hard ass yeah. and and did it beautifully. Yeah, I wonder was that before or after the cell that movie the ooh 
I don't. Cell was what, 2014? No, four? No, four maybe. I, I think 2004 It was around that time, maybe. I don't remember if it was before or after because he was such a, you know, a yeah. weird, yeah, horrible kind of character in that. But no, Vincent was fantastic. And, you know, look, I read that script and I loved it. And, um, and it is weird how some things, look, I mean, you know, I, I'm always amazed that anything comes out and is successful. In yes. that... So many times, things have, films have, that I've done came out on a bad weekend. There's a snowstorm uh -huh. and people don't show up. There's Columbine and films don't open. And especially where it seems like in this day and age, there's always something on the news cycle. There's always something happening. It's, a, it's an amazement to me. You know, they can market it wrong, it can be cut wrong, or it can just be weather. And the fact that everybody, you know, films that get through all those hurdles and then are huge successes, mm -hmm. always fascinating to me. What's even more fascinating to me is the people who consistently yeah. get past Break all of that. those hurdles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's what I aspire to. That's what, yeah. but that is, yeah. that is a gold in, in the middle of a wheat field. That's it's it's, true. It's hard to achieve that. It's hard. And to, and to keep that batting average, to keep that yes. is unbelievably mm -hmm. hard. And I think it then comes down to working harder to keep it up, probably like in anything else. You know what I mean? If you have a amazing season as a quarterback in football or an outstanding season batting in baseball, you got to double down and work harder to continue that. Mm -hmm. And I think I certainly see that with Chris and, and, and his films. You know, it becomes about being doing it better and better and better and better and upping the game every time. Yeah. Past Imposter, like yes. I said, I loved it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And I, I got a chance to work with Mr. D'Onofrio last mm. year. Uh, I was cast in a film that he was directing in, in uh, New Mexico. And what's what's really interesting to me about this one and about his character that he like the characters that he's playing right now mm. the characters that from the cell onwards yeah. that he was playing yeah he's he's always this big imposing and he's a big guy he's a big guy yeah but he is the sweetest yeah most understanding person that i've worked with for sure that's lovely yeah uh, and it, it was just it was it was kind of magical to to see those two differences and to see because one of my favorite actors is james cagney james cagney mayor, mayor of hell did you ever see mayor of hell no I that haven't. was my you should see it. it's a great I'm movie it was it. one of my favorite movies growing up um was a cagney movie yeah for me jimmy stewart james cagney yeah you know we're all my favorites kind well, of growing well, up with cagney what was so interesting to me is he played public enemy is one yeah. of my favorite movies yeah he played a horrible human being. Horrible. And a lot of characters he played were horrible. But apparently, he was the exact opposite. Mm. And, and that, I think, is... It's, it's a fascinating thing that I talk to actors a lot you know, about is that you know, people are only given the opportunity. They're never used, actors are not always given the opportunity to play what they're able to play or capable of playing. But what they're allowed to play. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a horrible kind of pigeonholed thing this, this business does, you know, is that it puts people in a box and then wants them there. You know, if I know who you are, then I might know where I am in the world. Mm -hmm. Remember going to see um, uh, Fifth Element. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember sitting in the dark theater, and I think I was alone, and I was looking at it, and I thought, well, there's Bruce Willis doing pretty much what he did on Moonlighting, just in a different outfit, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, well, isn't that fascinating, and where do other people, like, people want Stallone to be Stallone. Yes, people they do. want, you know, want Bruce Willis to be Bruce Willis. I don't know that they would want to see Bruce Willis do a transgender small love story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe. Absolutely. But I think there is something about the phenomenon of viewing films and, and, and watching movies. Whereas if I know who you are, I, then something's right in the world. I know where I yeah. am, you know? And... Um, and it's something that actors have to deal with all the time. And it's something that you, as a casting director, has to take into consideration for when sure. you're casting someone. For sure, you know. How does that play up against wanting to cast somebody who is opposite of type? It, you know, it's usually a huge hurdle. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to be around a collective group of people, a director that sees it, a producer that is, supports it, a studio that will allow it. You have to be all on the same page to make that kind of thing happen. Or else, you know, you're a voice in the wind, mm -hmm. you know? And more and more as film becomes about more marketing, you know, in this day and age of superhero movies and, you know, Marvel and, you know, that world of films, it becomes harder and harder to do, you know, because yeah. it is about selling that product. It's about making a toy that then gets bought. It's about all those things. And it's not necessarily, I mean, indie independent films hopefully do this. The advent of Netflix and everything that is on now. The opening of all these OTT all services. These, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think gives you the opportunity, which is an amazing thing. And hopefully actors feel that opportunity opened up to them, you know, rather than shut down more and more. Because very few people, Philip Seymour Hoffman played what he was capable of playing. Yeah. Meryl Streep gets to play what she's capable mm -hmm. of playing. Maybe Hopkins, Daniel maybe. Day Lewis. Yeah, yeah, Daniel Day. There's, like, there's 10 of them. It's a handful. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> yeah. else is playing a version of who they are. Yeah. And while that's great, it's also a misnomer to how most actors are trained. Most actors are trained to believe you can play anything. Yes. That's fine in theater, but in film and television, we're going to go find the person. We need somebody 80. We'll go find an 80-year-old person. Yeah. You're not going to play that. You're not going to put on a wig and pretend like you're 80. Mm -hmm. you know? Unless you're James Dean and right. the biggest thing in the world at right. the time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so, it, so that reality check, I think, yeah. is important for actors listening. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. You know? um, and so it's almost like the more you know yourself, the more you can have confidence in who you are, the more you stand to gain, I think, you know, and I think Absolutely. academia and, and, and studying acting does at times does a real disservice to actors. It's fine to explore all those realms, but really sometimes it's like, you know, it's not about a black dress on Tuesday and what you're going to wear in an audition. It's about know who you are. Mm -hmm. It's about know your soul. Go read a book of, of psychology. Go read a book about philosophy. And, and incorporate that into your being because that's going to individualize you more than, you know, luck mm -hmm. or an outfit or the time of day or any of that. Absolutely. It's about being an individual, you know? Yeah. So everyone out there, uh, go pick up, uh, let's see, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Let's get, let's get some Carl Jung. Yeah. 
uh, that's a good place to start. It is. And, and we'll go from there. Um, so I did want to talk about one of the shows that you've got, well, two mm. of the shows that you've got going on right now. Uh, one that was, that was last year, it's on Netflix right now, Manhunt, mm. Unabomber, holy shit. That show's great. I started it in preparation for this. I thought, oh, I'm going to watch an episode yeah. or two. I'm six episodes in, and I can't stop watching it now. Paul Bettany mm. is amazing, amazing in the show. Yeah. Uh, and I, honestly, I didn't recognize him for the first couple scenes that I saw him in. Yeah. I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, where is he coming yeah, in where's this Paul? show? Where's Paul? <laughs> where's Paul? I love him. Yeah. And then yeah. he his performance is just staggering yeah yeah how did you land on him for that role you know we had um we talked about you know it always starts with discussions i mean i have to say you know the the greg utanis that directed and you know the the writing in that series is just fantastic it's, real it's really really good <laughs> and i remember sitting there and reading it going well you know that's a huge part of the of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. you, when you have material like that and you get to expose it to people, um, it's it's out of the norm. You know, and so I was lucky in that. You know, the material was fantastic and it spoke to actors. Um, we talked about Paul because he's such a chameleon. You know, yes, he is. and um, and when we started talking about yes, Ted had a certain physique and he had a certain look and all those things but it wasn't about so much as that as about his essence and talking about somebody that could be lonely and isolated mm -hmm. and super intelligent and passionate and driven and all those things that he was in his deranged way and Paul kind of started to check all those boxes you okay. know the, that's somebody that he could transform himself into this you know and you know, I honestly got lucky that his manager read it and loved it and sent it to Paul and he was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. So sometimes you get lucky, you know, and sometimes um, it really helps start to inform everything else. You know, I remember when we said Sam and Paul were doing it, people were like, oh, what? You know, they stand up and take notice and then that helps you get Jeremy Bob and it helps you get, yeah. you know. Um, Who uh, was, he's a horrible person in yeah. the show. But he's great. Holy shit, he's yeah. good. Yeah, he's, he's his fantastic. performance is so good in that yeah, show. It so really too. steals yeah. some scenes every now and again. Yeah, which I agree. It's Keisha Castle. Hughes was great. Like yeah. it was, you know, it was um I can't say charmed, but I think, you know, we put up um you know, we took big swings at people and and what we were supported with was a great script. Yeah. 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 Um so the other show, uh Coming out season two later this year. Uh, everyone's stoked about it. Uh, we've actually had one of the writers from this show oh. on one of our other podcasts, Charles Yu. Fantastic. Um, uh, and it was lovely talking with him. Uh, the show that I'm talking about is Westworld, everybody. Mm. Uh, you've got such an amazing cast across the board in this show. Thank you. Evan Rachel Wood, Tandy Norton, Jeffrey Wright, James Marsden, Ed Harris, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Tessa Thompson, and on and on and on and on and on, and there's more coming. Mm. Um, one of the things that stood out, uh, and we had a little bit of a conversation with, the, with Charles about this, uh, is how much diversity there is mm. in this world mm -hmm. that's created. Mm -hmm. um, and, a, and a diversity that didn't necessarily exist in 
the Western times. Right. How much of that comes from the casting process and, and, and your side of things, mm. and how much of that was written in? Um, Jonah and, and Lisa, again, Jonah Nolan, Lisa Joy, um, who created the show, uh, you know, um, it's the offspring of the Nolan. So, I mean, it's, it's smart and um, extraordinary and, uh, and a lot of things. But So they certainly had opinions about how they saw it and what we hope to achieve with it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think that it, we did all kind of agree. We wanted, to, we wanted it to be a version of the future that was inclusive of people. You know, and um, and not necessarily a historical recreation of the old West, mm -hmm. but the experience of the old West. And so, you know, it certainly came and went, but we wanted it to be, you know, representative of what a future we could imagine be like and have it in that world. And so, you know, not only being um, caring about envisioning it that way, but to make it a real practicality and kind of try and be as colorblind as we could mm -hmm. with all those roles. So the process in casting, were you seeing all ethnicities oh, yeah. for everything yeah, across yeah, yeah, the board? Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Are you seeing more and more of that happening? Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. I mean, I think people are certainly aware of it. You know, it's funny because, you know, this, the, 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 the idea of access to um, uh, ethnicity and, and access for those actors to be in shows, it, it falls on casting directors' shoulders to some degree and people think it's all that, but really is about the writing, you know? Yeah. If, and, and it's about those creators that then are open to it or aren't, you know? It always okay. is shocking to me that, you know, at times you'll, you'll talk to people and like, oh, no, 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 they're definitely, no, they gotta be this, you know? And that comes from people that we answer to. You know, we, you know, I mean, ah. it's not just willy-nilly that we kind of go, oh, well, this, Afri this character can be African-American or this character could be Asian. Or yes, you try and push that agenda along when you can and when it serves the story or it's a toss-up. Mm -hmm. But again, like I said, you also have to have receptive people on the other end of that. And particularly in television, I find it a little hard, you know, because, well, because people... I don't know why. It's first of all because it's a writer's medium, and okay. writers have the last word and they, on it. Writers are uh, notoriously opinionated. Exactly, and yeah. because they created because they've it. lived in that world that they've created. That's right, yeah. and so you find it to be more opinionated in the sense of no, that's not what that is. Mm -hmm. And my attitude as a casting director is a little bit more like, okay, you wrote it a week ago, change it. You know what I mean? Why, what is it, you know, why, why are we so married to it? But it does come out of, it was somebody's vision in their head mm -hmm. and they put pen to paper and, well, not anymore, but, you know, they wrote it and so they're married to those ideas and breaking that can be tougher than most people think. Yeah. You know. Are there any tips that you have for people who want to be in casting mm. who are... Or who are even thinking about being in casting? Because yeah. you said you were an actor before. Yeah. I know a lot of the casting directors we've talked to either came from the world of acting or yeah. came from the world of theater. Yeah. What do you have for somebody who is kind of teetering on the edge of, I don't know if I want to be an actor anymore. I don't know if I want to, like, but maybe casting could be a thing. Mm -hmm. um, look, it's, it's provided me an incredibly, um, I'm, I feel incredibly blessed 
that you know the moments that stick with me are when I feel like I'm in the presence of an artist. You know, a lot of okay. people will say, "Oh, what's the worst audition you've ever seen?" or "What are the?" That's not what necessarily sticks with me. It's those moments where I see an actor make a choice that gives me chills, or a moment where I just sit and talk to somebody and I feel like this is an extraordinary human being for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that stay with me. And to say that you do that as a profession, to sit and kind of even talking to you, like this is my job. Yeah, it's you know, rad. right? I, I'm from Florida. I could be digging yeah. ditches. I'm from Arkansas. I'm, yeah, I'm, you could, could really be, be digging, I could, digging well, that's ditches. That's what my brother yeah. does. That's his yeah, job. Really. is literally digging ditches. Right. And I think you know. So I feel incredibly fortunate that um, that I've been able to, you know, exist, make a living, have a career in something that is so extraordinary and help storytellers tell their story, put something on a screen, collaborate with you know, directors and producers and, and figure out how best to tell their stories and, and realize their dreams and visions. And um, so to me, it's incredibly rewarding, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't mean that it's a, you know, a, a skip down the lane. Like there's sure. a lot it's of a lot people of that you have to get on this, you know, it's really managing people in a lot of ways. You have to get the, everybody on the same page, you know, and that can be incredibly difficult. Now, it's also how I believe the job should be, at least how I do it that it is that kind of collaboration. I'm not the person that's like, you're wrong, this is who you should cast, and blah, blah, blah. It has I'll to be a little bit more diplomatic opinion. than yeah. that. Yeah, I'll always give you my opinion, whether you want to hear it or not, but ultimately, it's their choice. Mm -hmm. You know, it, uh, it's, it's not up to me to demand a director or a producer or somebody else cast a certain person. You know, I will always give you my yeah. opinion and tell you what I think is best, but ultimately, they have to decide that. It's, you know, it's their film. Yeah. Uh, I've got a thousand more questions, but I think we've got to wrap it up. Uh, right. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, Sorry, I rambled oh, on a no, lot. No, no, no. Not at all. I always over-prepare for these things because I start and I can't stop because I really, really enjoy Three it. more things. Just name three, just more three things. things that you researched. Okay. Uh, Ben-Hur. Yeah. Okay. Uh, keep going. <laughs> actually, I, I I wanted to quickly talk about Pillow Asbeek. Oh yeah, yeah. He was perfect in the role of Pillow Asbeck. He's Asbeck. um he's a fantastic actor, extraordinary so actor. So good. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm always stole. the guy that like is like likes a challenge. Uh -huh. So people go, oh, do you want to do the you know the television version of Charlie's Angels? Do you want to do Dumb and Dumber? Do you want to do Ben Hur? Do you want to? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a challenge. How can I recreate what that was? Doesn't always work out the best, but but you know, you're willing to step up and take that challenge. I, I like a challenge, and I, I think that that is one of the reasons that you operate so highly, is because like Heath Ledger, mm. not being afraid of stepping mm. into something that may blow up in your face. Yeah, honestly, it very well could have. Heath Ledger could have come in, could have done his Joker. And tons of people could have been like, that's not Joker. Yeah, Joker Harry could have blown up in our face. Harry Absolutely. Styles could have blown up in our face. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's about taking risks. But for me, it's also about, well, how do I keep it fresh and passionate and care about what I want to do? And, and so it comes down to that, like, well, yeah, I don't want to be safe. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, and I, I like challenges. So I'm the dope that signs up for them. I appreciate that. I really do. And... 
Again, thank you, John Papsidera, for having us in your office today Anytime. Uh, to discuss this. And you just said it. I'm, I'm going to hit you up again. We're going we're gonna to have another conversation. Oh, my God. Just like so this. many more things to say. Now, I really appreciate <laughs> your time. Thanks for coming in and been asking. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. All right. There it is, another episode of Placing Faces in the Bag. And I think this one was a really good one. What do you think? Uh, would love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts, comments, questions. What casting directors would you like to hear from next? What films and TV are interesting to you? Let us know in the comments. Also, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, love, heart, thumbs up, and share with every single person that you know. Tune in for next week's episode when we chat with Angelique Midthunder, a local casting director coming at us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I mean, we've all felt the heartbreak of, of um, when you even work on something and then you don't even know that you ended up on the cutting room floor and you go to the premiere with your mom and dad and then you're not even in the movie and your best friend is like, I thought you said you were in this movie. I mean, it happens to everybody. Placing Faces is powered by Collaborator.com, a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies, allowing you to scale your production based on your needs. Video professionals find work and companies save money. We'd also like to thank our partners at the Casting Society of America for helping to introduce us to so many of our guests. They also serve as a hub of information about this branch of the film and television industry. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, you can visit www.castingsociety.com. Thanks for listening.